Hello and welcome to Pythagorean Astronomy. I'm Chris North and what you're about to listen to was originally broadcast as part of Pythagoras' Trousers, a science and engineering show on Radio Cardiff. You can find a full show and listen to past episodes at pythagorastrousers.co.uk. But for now, here's this month's astronomy. Well, unless you've been under a bush for the last month, you can hardly have missed the news of the year, possibly even, it could be argued, the century. The direct detection for the first time of gravitational waves by the LIGO detectors in the US. The detectors have a lot of involvement around the world, including researchers in the UK and specifically here in Cardiff. We'll talk to a few of them later on. But with me first, Edward Gomez, back again. Hi, Chris. This really is an amazing story. It is. This is something which, when I was an undergrad, and actually when I was a postgrad back in 1999, this was the thing that they kept saying, oh, it's five, ten years away. And we'd sort of thought, you'll never find them, because it was always five or ten years away. And um, now they've done it. Now they have found um, this this really strange signal. And it's so significant because it opens up a way of viewing the universe that we have never, ever had before that's so totally different to every other way that we've got of viewing the universe. And the detection that was made was actually picked up last September, the 14th of September 2015, that's the dawn of gravitational wave astronomy, if you like. <laughs> uh, and that the, the signal that was picked up was from two black holes, each around 30 times the mass of the sun. These are huge black holes compared to what we normally see. Yeah, and uh, actually, people didn't really think black holes could be that big. Um, so we, or, or rather, black holes that are formed from stars. Anyway, um, the now black holes have been talked about uh, for a long time, and we've known of their existence, but we haven't ever directly measured something about a black hole. We, uh, we've we've measured their influence on their environment, uh, but we've never seen any rays from a black hole itself because by its very nature uh, a black hole is black because uh, no light can escape from its surface and actually uh, an area around a black hole Uh, and so that makes them very difficult to see you can see the absence of light if they were to pass in front of very bright things you could see these things get dimmer Uh, but that's uh, it's it's actually they're very very small as well so it's it's never been seen um, and now we have this this final proof that black holes do exist. Well, the signal that was seen was the last few orbits of the black holes going round each other about initially 30 times a second and then ramping up to about 100 times a second just before they merge into one much more massive black hole. And we can actually translate that into audio and we can listen to the, the audio clip of what would happen if you were listening to gravitational waves. possibly a bit anticlimactic but you can go and do that for yourself online uh that's right yeah you can actually uh you can play a game which is very similar to what real gravitational wave researchers do called black hole hunter i think it's blackholehunter.org and uh you can uh listen for the signal in the noise at various different points and see actually how difficult it is to find these things to find out what gravitational wave researchers really do i thought i'd go and speak to a few of them here in cardiff I'm joined by uh, Andrew Williamson, a PhD student uh, who's working on the LIGO instrument and gravitational waves. Uh, Frank Ohm, who's a postdoctoral researcher here in Cardiff and works on uh, looking at what these signals tell us about the original sources. And Lionel London, who's also a postdoctoral researcher here who can tell us all sorts about black holes and general relativity. But to begin with, let's start with Andrew. Could you tell us 
what is the LIGO experiment and, and what does it look like? Well, the, the LIGO detectors um, are located in two places in the United States. One of them is in the desert of Washington State in the Northwest and the other one is in Louisiana. Um, and these are two uh, L-shaped instruments and each arm of the L is about four kilometers long. These are very large facilities and the idea here is that when a gravitational wave passes by it will stretch and squeeze space so that one of the, the arms of the L shape gets a little shorter and the other one gets a little longer. That's the characteristic effect of a gravitational wave passing by. And so we've built these two instruments to try and measure that effect. Um, and we do that by using a laser. We shine a laser up both arms, ha basically half, half of a laser beam up one arm, half up the other arm. Um, and if the arms are exactly the same length, then the laser will take the same amount of time to go up and down, bounce off a mirror at the far end, come back to the middle. Um, but if a gravitational wave passes by and it changes the length of the arms, then the laser light will take different amounts of time to travel along each arm and we'll be able to detect that effect. Um, but the effect is very, very tiny. So a gravitational wave will only stretch and squeeze space by a tiny, tiny amount. Maybe one part in one with 21 zeros after it. Um, and so that's why we had to build these things very, very big, because if you get a four kilometer long ruler, basically, then it's going to stretch and squeeze that ruler by a, a still a tiny, tiny amount, but something that we actually can, can measure. It's about uh, one one thousandth the width of an atomic nucleus. Um, and amazingly, we, we're actually able to measure that with these instruments. So it's a, it's a billionth of a billionth of a metre, I believe, is the, is the stretching. It really is a phenomenal, the, the most accurate ruler in, uh, in all of humanity, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked about these gravitational waves passing through, and Frank, I'll, I'll come to you. What, uh, we should probably cover uh, the, the age-old question of what is a gravitational wave? Can you tell us a little bit about the background of gravitational waves and, and where, where the theory comes from and what they tell us? Well, gravitational waves are a prediction of Einstein's theory of general relativity. Um, and basically, whenever masses uh, are accelerated, even if you, you know, just move your little finger, they uh, warp by a tiny amount the space and time around them. And these distortions, they travel out at the speed of light, just like um, if you drop a stone into the water and you see ripples in the water um, propagating out. But uh, space is extremely stiff, so if you move your finger, or even if the sun is, um, uh, the earth is moving around the sun, um, these effects are so small that there's no chance that we would ever notice them or ever detect them. So what it really needs is something very, very heavy, moving very, very fast, and in this movement, sloshing up space um, around it. And, and these are the waves that then propagate through the universe. And so when you're looking at the, at the results, uh, you see this uh, fluctuation in space as the gravitational wave passes through, and you can infer lots of things about what emitted it. In this case, it was two black holes, and we'll come shortly to, to what, how you know that and what that, uh, how we establish that there were black holes. But, but Lionel, we should uh, first of all discuss black holes themselves. People are familiar with the term black hole, I'm sure, but can you describe the, the black hole? What are the... What are the what are the environments around a black hole going to be like? And what is the environment of this, this pair of black holes? What was going on? What are the, the environment there with this binary pair of black holes like? Okay, so 
The short answer is we don't really know. Um, but the broader answer is that we expect many different types of astrophysical scenarios to result in two black holes. Uh, for stellar mass black holes, which the population of which we are still not very sure about, um, we expect that some of them may have sort of, sort of light gas around them, but many of them uh, may not. They may be isolated. In either case, we don't really expect to be able to see them because we haven't seen them. Um, for this binary black hole system that we detected, uh, as far as we know, at the moment, there was no significantly obvious optical counterpart. So, so no flash of light that went with this collision of two black holes? Exactly. Um, and and for, the, for the most part, uh, historically, we've been looking for these types of signals, so signals uh, corresponding to two black hole mergers, without really expecting uh, an optical counterpart. So perhaps uh, our current practical understanding is that these black holes were really just two black holes isolated. Um, starting out very far apart, um, far enough apart to radiate any, uh, let's see, asymmetry in the way they were orbiting each other, so that at some point, or really when we begin to see them, uh, they were moving around each other in a way that was almost circular. Okay, so these are two black holes, and they're big black holes. You, you mentioned stellar mass black holes. That's a black hole that's got, it's a few times the mass of the sun. In this case, quite a few times the mass of the sun. These, these are bigger than any black hole we've detected before. Yes, quite a few times the mass of the sun. Um, correct me on the numbers because I'm terrible with numbers. Uh, 32 and 30... 36 and 29 is our best guess Thank you. how heavy they are. Right. Yeah, so uh, these types of black holes having a, a total mass um, of around 70 initially. Um, we, we don't really understand the formation mechanisms for these types of systems. Uh, so this, this is one of the reasons why this particular detection was so unexpected. So you've got two black holes, very, very massive, about 30 times the mass of our sun, so that's about 10 million times the mass of the Earth. They're black holes, so they're, they're pretty small, so a couple of hundred kilometers across, so smaller than Iceland. The sizes of black holes are hard to say. Black holes don't have a surface. What, can you describe a black hole? The, the idea that black holes don't have a surface is absolutely true. They don't have, a, they don't have mountains, for example. They, they don't have bumps. But they are defined in Einstein's general relativity by a, a surface, a surface, a sort of mathematical surface called an event horizon. Uh, and, and this is, uh, corresponds directly to the notion of black holes being black. Uh, if a light ray, for example, um, moves in the vicinity of the event horizon, it will be... Uh, its path will be deflected. But if it gets too close, if anything gets too close, it will not be able to move away. Therefore, it will be sucked in. So even light will be sucked in. Therefore, the black hole will be, as the name happily suggests, black. And, and this is the idea. The event horizon is the point beyond which, or, or within which, uh, nothing, not even light, can escape. Yes. Now, the final black hole, which is about 60 times the mass of the sun, uh, we think is, is spinning incredibly quickly. This thing is spinning at something like a hundred times a second. What what must that be like? Well, in, in, in literal terms, it is 100 times a second. But, you know, I, I always personally feel a bit of caution when describing, uh, for example, how fast the black hole is spinning in, in terms of hundreds of times per second and how large the black hole is in terms of kilometers, because in, in principle, these quantities depend on how one is observing the black hole. If one is in 
uh, a spaceship uh, moving around the black hole uh, static or moving some fraction of the speed of light, you will see different quantities for these measurements. And that's because of relativity tells us, yeah. Einstein's theories tells us that what you measure changes depending on the environment, the, these intense gravitational fields. So the beauty of general relativity and the beauty of how we, we use it in LIGO to detect these gravitational waves is that the theory gives us a framework, a, a set of equations that allow us to measure observer independent quantities. So it doesn't doesn't matter that we were on the Earth measuring it. You could have been anywhere in the universe and you'd have measured the same thing, essentially. Is that the idea? Well, anywhere in the universe, a certain distance away from this black hole, you would have measured up to experimental uncertainty, the same thing. Yes. Now, when, when the wave passes through, the, the arms of LIGO stretch and shrink and stretch and shrink. And they started off doing it at about 30 times a second, about 30 hertz. And they, as the black holes spiraled in towards each other, it ended up being 100 or 200 hertz. And transforming that into sound is that sound we heard near the start of the program. So they don't emit sound themselves, but we can convert it into sound. But when they merge, the two black holes released a huge amount of energy. And that's the energy that we pick up in these, these gravitational waves. And it was... Uh, t tell us more about the, the energy released in this event. Yeah, well, I mean, <clears throat> the first thing to say is that you say they were, they were going around one another and then they merged. Well, we, we actually saw a signal lasting 0.2 of a second, and in that time they went around one another more than five times. Um, so these things are moving at about half the speed of light, even a little quicker than that, and they're very, very heavy. So there's so much energy. I mean, it's, it's impossible to even imagine just what that would be like to be near that. Um, so, so much energy is involved in this collision. And in the end, about... Um, three suns worth of pure energy was given off in the merger so if you were to take three times our sun and just convert it straight up into pure energy and send it out as ripples in space that's what happened and that's uh that's an awful lot of energy because your average nuclear bomb is converts something like one kilogram or so of stuff into pure energy i think so this, a, a star is certainly a lot more than one kilogram. So, you know, it's an unimaginable amount of energy. But it travels a great distance because this collision happened <clears throat> about a billion light years away. So for a billion years, these ripples were moving out and getting weaker and weaker as they, as they traveled out. So by the time they got to the Earth, their effect was, was rel you know, really quite small. Um, and the other, the other thing is that most of the energy passed us straight by and was completely unabsorbed by our instruments or by the Earth or anything, because gravity doesn't really interact very strongly with, with stuff. So um, that's why it was so difficult to pick them up, because there, there may be so much energy involved in the, in the collision, but actually only a tiny, tiny fraction of it is actually accessible to us with our instruments. Um, so it's a very tiny effect. And despite it being a tiny effect and we only see this very, very small signal, we can infer a lot of the properties. So the masses we've talked about of the black holes, how fast they're spinning, how far away they are, we tell these just from that simple curve. I'm sure the process is very, very complex, but the, the, the simple variation of the frequency and the amplitude of these waves, which we can transform to the sound we heard, that you can tell what was going on and insist in this system a billion light years away. Now, now, Frank, one of the things that you and colleagues here in Cardiff work on is that process of taking these signals and inferring what's 
happened in these astrophysical sources. Uh, how, how, can you describe how that process worked? Yeah, what is um, important to us is that we know what we are looking for. And again, um, Einstein's equations basically give us all the tools we need to understand uh, what kind of signals um, we're expecting. So what we did prior to the um, detection of this gravitational wave was to explore what are the different types of signals we could hear um, from different types of sources. And in fact, a lot of this requires um, calculating the exact signature of um, colliding black holes and supercomputers um, for a long time. And then we have what we call theoretical models um, of the signals. And it's, it's really like basically knowing lots of different voices, say from different people. And if I now hear someone talk, I can immediately say who it was just by comparing what I know about the different voices to what, I, what I'm hearing. And, and this is what this is exactly how our analysis of the data works. We take the data and simply compare it with one theoretical prediction. And if it fits, then um, we try some, you know, try changing um, the system a little bit and see if the signal still looks the same. And if it's very different, we can we can rule that out. And this is again a, a computationally very complicated and long process because there are a lot of systems that could emit similar signals. Um, but if, at the end of the day, um, putting all our knowledge together and, and, and using supercomputers for hours and days and months, um, we get, what do we get? Um, we get a very good understanding of uh, what the source was and what it, what it was not. And this is what we report. And fr Frank mentioned, Lionel, that uh, you can uh, use models in supercomputers of black holes merging and so on. And this allows us to, to test those models, but also to test the theory on which they're based, namely general relativity. How important are these observations of such extreme systems for testing general relativity uh, to its, its limits, if you like? So broadly, uh, this first detection gives us really the first opportunity ever to test general relativity in the strong field regime. So to put that in context, shortly after general relativity was developed, it was used to explain the precession of the perihelion of Mercury. Um, and this effect was puzzled astronomers for, for many, many years. Um, but general relativity, with its perspective of space and time, allowed us to understand this. But as Frank explained earlier, even with a planet going around the sun, this is a relatively weak uh, situation in, in the context of general relativity. We need something very strong, very distortive, like massive black holes, solar massive black holes, in order to uh, have a sufficiently strong effect on space-time for us to really test general relativity to its fullest extent. So with this detection, uh, as the black holes are circularly inspiraling towards each other, that has its own signature associated with general relativity. As the black holes get closer and begin to move faster around each other, uh, they emit gravitational waves at a higher amplitude. And when they get to a point where their event horizons become very close to each other and they're moving significantly close to the speed of light, about half times the speed of light, 
Um, now we're really in the strong field regime where things are very massive, gravitational forces very strong, and they're moving very quickly. Uh, so gravitational wave detections give us an opportunity to really stress test general relativity in this regime and even the regime shortly after the black holes merge um, into a single black hole, which sort of rings down from, this, from the perspective of the detectors. Um, so we can compare this ringing down radiation with the strong field merger radiation and the inspiraling radiation. Um, we can uh, compare the detected signal to, uh, as, as Frank explained, the models uh, that are derived directly from general relativity. So a part of the game of this, I suppose, is that general relativity, with the help of supercomputers, gives us a shape. Um, to, to go back to Frank's analogy, uh, you can imagine the voice of general relativity being the voice of Einstein. Um, and if we understood how uh, Einstein's voice sounds, if it has a certain pitch, has a certain timbre, he speaks with a certain pace, um, then we can map that back to, uh, in, internally within our minds, a test, uh, given a number of voices, can we determine from how quickly someone is speaking, their timbre, their tone, um, uh, what person is speaking. And in the same way, we can map back to the theory of general relativity, uh, given a, a, signa a, a signal of a certain frequency, of a certain amplitude in the in-spiral, and uh, peak emission and ring-down portion, uh, whether or not the signal is consistent with the voice of Einstein. And as well as these, these black holes colliding and doing all these, these important tests, LIGO is also sensitive to other sources. In fact, a, a black hole binary isn't the first thing that was necessarily expected to be found. It was a very strong signal. Uh, found very early on in the, in the experiment, there was another weaker signal seen as well, which is, is less strong but may well also be uh, another pair of, of black holes colliding at a, at a greater distance. So, Andrew, what are we looking for in the future with LIGO, and, and what do we expect to see with it? Well, uh, there are some sources which will be kind of in some ways similar to two black holes. Um, we have two objects that are very dense, massive remains of dead stars, black holes, but also these things called neutron stars. And when you have pairs of these, uh, these objects in an orbit around each other, very close by, and then eventually merging, um, both two neutron stars, two black holes, and a neutron star and a black hole. These uh, three kind of families of sources we we expect to see with LIGO. Um, we have never seen, you know, we've only seen the two black holes, so that that still leaves over the the neutron stars for us to find, which we're hoping that we'll probably see maybe later this year or, or next year. Um, there are also other kind of classes of sources that we might see, so not the merging of two objects, but there is a, a chance that we might detect wobbling neutron stars that are on their own, so they're not in a pair, and they're spinning very fast. And we, we see these objects uh, as pulsars. Pulsars are sources of radio waves that we see ticking very, very regularly, like a, like a perfect clock or like a lighthouse. You know, the, the beam, the radio beam passes us by as this thing is spinning in space like a lighthouse. Um, so we know that these objects, basically they are neutron stars and that they're spinning very fast. And if they're slightly wobbling as they spin, so they're not perfectly symmetrical, then that wobble should give off 
gravitational waves at a, a certain frequency. So it'd be like a continuous tone of gravitational waves. Um, and we think that if we get if we get lucky enough and there's one of these nearby enough and it's wobbling enough, then you, you could see something like that with LIGO. The other big class of, of kind of transient sources, things that come and go, are exploding stars, supernova explosions, things called gamma ray bursts. Um, these are all, we think, cataclysmic explosions of, of stars as they run out of fuel at the end of their life and they collapse in on themselves, possibly then to form a black hole, you know, which some time later may merge in a black hole merger, but the thing that we might also see is the actual forming of the black hole in the first place from the explosion of a star at the end of its life, because this would also be like a, you know, dropping a stone in a pond. It's just a sudden release of energy in gravitational waves. And, and finally, in the coming years, LIGO is not going to be alone. Uh, there's the, the GEO 600 detector, which was founded by uh, a, a German-British collaboration, including members here in, in Cardiff. That's smaller, so isn't as sensitive as LIGO, but there are more experiments coming online with advanced Virgo in, in Italy and then more around the world. Frank, how are more detectors going to help us over coming years? Well, we, this detector network really operates like uh, a number of microphones or a number of ears, so... Um, and they pick out um, sources from all around them. So really with just one ear or one microphone, you can't really tell where the source is coming from. And even with two detectors, as we have now with the two LIGO detectors, um, pinpointing on the sky where the source is coming from is, is difficult. And we have a rather large area um, with, where this detection we just made uh, could, could be coming from. But with the third detector, Virgo, um, quite likely, and more detectors to come, an uh, underground detector in Japan, um, in detector in India. <clears throat> Our ability to trace back the location of the source will vastly improve, which is great because then we can um, communicate even better with other astronomers um, because in the end we've opened a new window on the universe, which alone is, is fantastic, but the new era of astronomy will combine gravitational wave information with information from radio waves or optical light. And in order to, um, to enable this, we have to tell people where they have to look, uh, which direction they have to um, uh, look into. And uh, this will improve greatly with more detectors. And of course, the simple fact is that if you, if you have more ears that are listening out, you become more and more sensitive and you can look deeper and deeper um, into these fascinating processes that emit gravitational waves. Well, there's certainly much more to come in the future. We're now in the era of gravitational wave astronomy, so uh, you can now uh, stop being made fun of by your classical astronomy friends for not having made the detection uh, before, so congratulations to the whole team uh, on having done that, I suppose. Um, it's been a marvellous uh, opportunity. Any thoughts on what this is going to mean for, for you guys with your... Uh, immediate research in the future, uh, Lionel. All right, so uh, science, science is a strange culture. Yeah? Um, we, we, we sort of thrive on uh, asking questions, not just popular questions, but questions that inform the community in a way that the community uh, either knows it needs to be informed or really doesn't quite yet know that it needs to be informed. Um, so in that sense, uh, many of us are going to be in a way, busier than ever, working on things that we know that we need to uh, do better. 
but at the same time, uh, many of us uh, sort of in the grad student postdoc stage of our careers, we're also going to be trying to uh, illuminate things that we need to know that we don't quite yet need to know. Um, so I'm currently working on a number of ideas in, in both of these avenues, and I expect that I'll be uh, trying very hard to sleep well for the next few years. Andrew, your final thoughts? Uh, well, for me, the, the big thing would be to detect a signal coming from two neutron stars crashing together that also happens to coincide with uh, an explosion in space called a gamma ray burst. Um, this is the kind of thing that I, I am particularly focused on in my research, and uh, that would that would give us a great insight into what neutron stars are like, how they're, what the structure of a neutron star is like, how they interact with one another, and uh, give us a, a much better view inside an explosion of that magnitude, which we just can't do at the moment. Um, so that's that's what I am hoping for and hoping to work on in the near future. Fingers crossed. Uh, Frank, your thoughts? Well, I, th I think we've classified ourselves as theoretical physicists for quite a long time because we were in the comfortable situation that Einstein has given us these fantastic equations and you know we solved them and, and uh, everything was consistent. But now we have experimental data, so we are confronted with nature's reality, <clears throat> which I'm sure will pose interesting challenges in the near future. We've been extremely lucky. The signal we've seen now perfectly matches what we were expecting but I'm sure as we get more and more signals, some questions will come up that we, we're not even thinking about it now, um, which um, will be an interesting challenge at the interface of cutting edge technology and experiment and um, theory. It's certainly going to be an exciting few years for the gravitational physics community as well as the, the rest of the, the world at large to, to hear about these new discoveries. Uh, Lionel, Andrew and Frank, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. They've certainly got an interesting few years ahead of them in terms of all the research, but it's not just gravitational physicists with an interesting future. Classical astronomers, using good old-fashioned electromagnetic light, have got the work cut out for them as well, trying to find where these things are on the sky. And that's something where you come in. Yes, that's right. So uh, I work for an observatory called Las Cumbres Observatory. We have 17 telescopes operating all around the world. And uh, they're entirely robotic. Now, the reason that that's significant is because uh, so when an event like this uh, happens and is detected, uh, they they only have two detectors currently and they can't pinpoint where in the sky this this event was. And if there was any any uh, visible light um, or, or even, you know, uh, anything in gamma rays or any other part of uh, traditional electromagnetic spectrum uh, that that was shining that was coincident with that so that we could learn a bit more about uh, exactly what's going on. So um, we're part of the uh, the follow-up uh, mission that LIGO has that if they detect anything, then they send us a search area. Uh, because they've only got two detectors, it's like a, a stripe on the, the night sky. It's actually hundreds of degree, square degrees. Uh, it's a very, very large area. And... Uh, so we are one of the, the groups that go and look for anything that is there now that wasn't there um, previously or actually anything bright that's there that we can uh, rule out because it's not in a catalogue or anything like that. It's, uh, it's, it's actually quite an arduous task because it's such a large search area 
and so it's hundreds of square degrees and most telescopes um, uh, look at very much smaller areas of the sky uh, like a, a, a quarter of a degree uh, at a time so you know it does take a long time to to do this type of surveying and you also have to presumably do it quite quickly i mean the signal that ligo picked up lasted for 200 milliseconds they're certainly not going to get the the they only found it three minutes later which is pretty quick uh, then i got the alerts out that quickly but as soon as uh, last cameras observatory and other groups get the alerts you have to act pretty quickly yeah that's right uh, if we if we so we think uh, that maybe not for black holes but maybe for very similar things called neutron stars when they spiral together they could produce gamma ray bursts which do have an optical a visible light component and they tend to uh, last for well several seconds to minutes uh, and it depends uh, exactly we don't they actually don't really understand the physics terribly well there we've but never seen one before we've never seen one um so they could last several hours or several days um so we may be able to to find these things while they're still glowing and that would be you know actually having tied up both sides of that the, from the gravitational radiation and from the electromagnetic radiation uh we have a good picture of what these things are and as more detectors come online uh, over the next few years, the next decade or so, there's certainly going to be a lot more information about that to be able to do this tie-up between gravitational waves uh, and astronomy. So, Edward, thanks very much. OK. Well, we're not going to be finding any black holes when we look at the skies this month, but, of course, there are things to look at, and Hugh Lang's here to tell us Hello, what's Chris. in the sky. We're approaching the spring equinox, and we've got the winter stars in the sky still, but they're slowly disappearing. Yes, they're going to, well, in fact, not slowly, they're going to fairly rapidly disappear now because as the night and day equalises, this is the fastest part of the year for the change in, if you like, in the twilight. So the rap the, you'll find that the winter constellations, the stars, will, will rapidly disappear now. But of course, having said that, Orion is still very well on view, and of course it's one of the most, everybody knows Orion, uh, because of its distinctive shape but of course there's a lot of bright stars uh, associated with that particular part of the sky for instance we have a Rigel in the foot which is a nice big bright O type blue star and of course at the head there's the big red giant Betelgeuse which well who knows is going to go bang sometime it's certainly going to go supernova nice examples as well to try and tell the difference in colour of the stars that, that is correct yeah. that is correct Surrounded by lots of other bright stars Of as course, well. uh, if you think about it, we have Procyon, which is a bright star you can see from Cardiff, but the big star to look at, of course, is Cirrus. Uh, it's only eight light years away. It's a very, very bright white star, but because it's so buried in the atmosphere, if you like, it scintillates, so we see all the colours. And that's just the atmosphere scattering the light, it appears Basically, to change colour. Yes. And you can imagine all sorts of patterns. There's the winter triangle of Betelgeuse, uh, Procyon and Sirius. Uh, there's also the celestial G in that part of the That's sky, right. which stretches a, a, a huge area. But as well as the stars, we've also got Jupiter. That's right, the king of the planets, as, as, as we commonly call it. Uh, it's so obvious. It's really very bright. It's rapidly approaching opposition, which will be on the 8th of March. That so, means it rises on s sunset and sets at sunrise. That's right, yes. So it's going to be up all night, so it's going to be easy to see. And, of course, it, it's, it's pretty close to the Earth in terms of distance. So, you know, with a reasonable telescope, you can certainly see all the obvious uh, attributes. The four Galilean moons, Io, Europa, Ganymede and Callisto, are going to be well on view uh, through a small telescope or even in binoculars. But the best time to look for all those particular Galilean satellites 
will be on the 2nd of March, where they won't be either eclipsing or transiting the planet. So if you want to have a look for all four of the brightest moons, uh, that would be the best time to, to look at them. The, the moons are visible in binoculars, but you need to have a, either a steady hand or a tripod or balance them on a wall or something. Well, it helps. You can, you can actually hold a 10 by 50, but not a 10 by 50 binoculars. But anything larger, you certainly will need to use some sort of trans stand or tripod. There are other planets on view, but they're kind of hidden in the in the murk. We've got Mars and Saturn, quite hard to see. That's right. They're going to be low in the south, unfortunately, which means the atmosphere is going to be a bit of a problem. And certainly from Cardiff, of course, with the light pollution, it's not very good. But later in the year, both of those uh, will become slightly better. That is correct. Of course, with the clock springing forward on the 27th of March, we are going to have to be up slightly later to do any observing. That is correct. But, of course, the weather's getting warmer now as well, and hopefully slightly drier. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. It was originally broadcast on Radio Cardiff as part of Pythagoras' Trousers.